This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Just real quick, I would like to sum up what we talked about two weeks ago with the the problem of evil. And if you'll recall, as as we were looking at that, uh, we left off, we, we, we... very briefly touched on um, the, uh, well, let me show you. Let me find it here. All right, we, we had left off that we can trust God as he has been revealed to us. And we went through those things, and I'm not going to reiterate them again this evening. But what we did not get to, what I meant to, is that not only we can trust God as he has been revealed to us, but we should trust God. As he has been revealed to us, and one, because he is a conquering king. When it comes to the problem of evil, you can rest assured that evil is not eternal. God is a, he is the conquering king. God will one day put an end to pain, suffering, and evil. But also, number two, God is not only the conquering king, he is a suffering servant. The Christian's answer to evil really is found in, the, the, in Jesus' death on the cross. i got too many thes in there, although it, there is the Jesus. <laughs> There's only one there. Jesus' death on the cross. When you think about it, he was the suffering servant. He suffered pain and he suffered evil that you and I cannot even imagine. Now, now, what I'm say- not saying is, uh, you know, I could look and say, well, you know, the death on the cross was gruesome. And, and maybe you've heard those Easter services where they'll paint that picture of the, of the death of the crucifixion. And, and I've seen, or I, I've seen, I've been to Passion Plays, and, uh, and, uh, and I've seen those reenactment, reenactments, and they are, uh, they're brutal, and, and they're tough to watch. In fact, I, I have to tell you this story. My older brothers are just not to be trusted, right? My older brother, I was in Mobile, Alabama, watching a passion play at a church, and it's at the crucifixion. I'm sitting by my brother. He's nine. I'm five. And I, if you've ever read your Bible, sometimes, you know, we wouldn't let our children watch some things that are in the Bible, uh, that this five-year-old sitting there watching the crucifixion, wide-eyed. And my brother leans over to me, and he says, hey, do you know who they get to crucify? I said, No is this real? He says, oh yeah, this is real. He says, they go to the prison and they get someone on death row and they just kill them right now. And for the longest time, it scarred me. It scarred me, you know. And I thought that actually everyone, someone gave their life up every time someone did a play about Easter. It was that graphic. And, and, but we could sit here and we could talk about how we could give the graphic nature of a crucifixion. But here's the reality. Jesus was not the only person to ever die a gruesome death. That's not the pain and evil, although it was very evil and it was very painful. The fact, though, that he took sin upon him, that he became sin... That he was the penal substitution for us is the true magnitude of the evil that he endured as a suffering servant. Something we will never truly understand. 
in his death on the cross. So we see that he's the conquering. He is the suffering servant. He did that for you and for us. So when you feel like evil is just overwhelming you, take time to just meditate and reflect on the evil that Jesus endured for us. But we also see that he is also the righteous judge. Not only will one day he, as the conquering king, put an end to evil, he will one day vindicate himself, and he will rule with a rod of iron, and he will not be questioned. He will be the king of kings, the lord of lords. He will be the judge. And as as Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He is the righteous judge, and then finally... He is our Heavenly Father. Yes, it's, it's wonderful to, to contemplate that He is the conquering King. He is a suffering servant. He's a righteous judge. But He is our Heavenly Father. And uh, in fact, I think I changed it in your notes to loving Father. He will never let His children go. And even when you're at that Darkest place in your life where you say, does Jesus care? Know that you have a Heavenly Father who cares. And so, while I can be here and I can talk about the problem of evil, and I could say, and I could paint these pictures of, hey, here's how you can logically have an apologetic for the problem of evil. You're never truly going to understand and appreciate it until you have a relationship with God and you just leave it to Him. Because as we've talked in a couple weeks ago, we, uh, in, in the past, we could, we, could just, we could argue and reason why evil exists, but when evil actually comes, all those kind of go out the window and you just have to trust God. So, you, and you should trust God because this is what He has revealed to us. We can trust Him, but we should trust him. Okay, so we left off then the reliability of Scripture. That's where we're going to go tonight. You've got your notes. You got a question? I did not get one. You did not get one. We got one coming to you. All right. So let's talk about the reliability of Scripture. If you followed from the beginning here, the first lecture we talked about was how we don't, well, how corrupt our thinking is in our society and how we got here in that we live in a world that is, has this postmodern concept of, of, of logic or of, of reality where really it's relative. Everything is relative. And I don't know how well I did, but I tried to paint that picture that we just, we just don't think well in our society, in our culture. And I think it's influenced our churches and, our, and, our, and Christianity. Um, in fact, um, I think what we're seeing in our society is because uh, of, of some of the problems we've had in our churches and, and, and our, we've, we've gotten, let's see how I can describe this, we've We've gotten very devotional and a lot of Bible stories, and, and we tell, tell our children that, but we really haven't taught our children to think for themselves when it comes to the Word of God and to rightly divide it. And, uh, and, 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 I, and I, I, I'm, 
I feel that way uh, uh, even as I grew up. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school, uh, and, and I, I went to a Christian college, and then I went to a Christian seminary, and, uh, and I failed miserably at times in my life. Now, I'm not saying that nobody fails, but I am saying that there were times in my life where I had a crisis of faith, where I, as a, in my 30s, was looking at it in the job that I have, thinking, maybe I just want to walk away from this. And in fact, if you, get into new, if you look at the news over the past five or ten years, there have been people who have written books defending God and, and theology and who have said, I'm an atheist now. And we look at that, and I look at that, and I say, well, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I. It goes back to what we just talked about a few minutes ago, that God will never let his children go. But I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if we're doing, if, if we're really teaching our children to think for themselves, and not just think for themselves, but to, to look at the word of God as a, it is coherent, it it, it, it sh- it does make sense and, and, and help bolter, bolster their faith. Because if uh, we look at it, there's young people, which I used to be in that category, but I think I've moved on now, who are walking away from the church in droves. I think I even shared it when in the first couple talks we did was that uh, uh, some 70% of children who are raised in a Christian home leave the faith once they they don't go to church once they once they leave home and so i don't know i i think it's something that we need to uh i think we need to do better as 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 we're teaching our children and uh and and so uh encouraging them to think for themselves and to read the bible and that they can take it liter- to take the bible literally and they can understand it and they can uh and they can claim the faith for their own so we moved from that, that we don't think very well in our culture, and then we discussed, if you remember, the, uh, the existence of God. And we went into kind of some arguments of the existence of God, and the whole point was to thread this, put this thread throughout all of our thinking that, that there is actually logical arguments for some of these things. You don't just have to take this blind step out into the dark and say, well, I just believe it, and there's really no reason for believing it. There is actual reasons. We move from the existence of God, and we look then at the problem of evil. And now we're going to move into the reliability of Scripture. And honestly, we're getting to this point where if you are, uh, if, if you are still a skeptic, you're not going to fall in on this one tonight. You're not going to be convinced after tonight and say, whoa, okay, I, I, I believe. If you are a skeptic, you will still leave here this evening as a skeptic. And I'm going to explain why. We're going to look at the reliability of Scripture. And uh, this is our fourth lecture. And this evening, what we're going to do is explore why Christians believe the Bible is true and reliable. Of over the past century, this book has been attacked more and more. It really began towards the end of the uh, tw- uh, the nineteenth century, but over the twentieth century, I said this century. I meant the twentieth century. This book was attacked. But we do believe it is true and reliable. 
So here's the outline we're going to take tonight. And we'll, we'll start this evening, we'll conclude it next week. We're going to look at where did the Bible come from. We're going to ask that question. Where did it come from? How should Christians then use Scripture in Christian apologetics? As a Christian apologist, how do we explain why we believe the Bible is true? And under there, we're going to look at how the New Testament documents are historically reliable and credible. We're going to look at Jesus' character. We're going to look at Jesus' claims on the Old and New Testament. And then we're going to conclude with some rebuttals to common problems with the Bible. Some common problems with the Bible. Now, about, well, it was last November, I was out at sea, and I, uh, I decided I'd stay up one evening and go and uh, just talk to, uh, we are in flight operations, and so we had to keep our boat deck open in case uh, uh, we need to put the, uh, the boat in the water to do any kind of uh, search rescue. And so for hours on end, these sailors just manned the boat deck in the middle of the night. And so I decided I'd stay up one night and just walk down there to the boat deck. It was a little chilly out in the Atlantic in November, and I just thought, well, I'd just sit there and talk to them. And I was told they're just roughing it out there, and, uh, and it's dark, and it's, it's, and it's lonely. And, and so I walked down to go to the boat deck when I realized that they are all just kind of huddled in this shack where it's nice and hot, and they've got, they're watching movies, okay? So, uh, so I was like, all right. So, uh, but there was me and this bosun mate who was our, uh, uh, he's our, our, our ribs coxswain, who, uh, his job would be to put the, the boat in the water and, and, so, and then drive it, uh, him and I get to talking. And he was the most antagonistic person I have met in a long time. I sure did enjoy it. He was just, he, he starts talking and he says, how can you believe the Bible is true? And he just asked me that question. And, and I got very quickly into the conversation, I realized that he really doesn't want to know what I have to say at all. And so I just started listening to his critique. And he began to critique it. Well, you know, he would say, the Bible, we can't even trust it because the Bible says the world is flat. Then he would move on, he said, and then we've got all these other books of the Bible that have been found most recently, uh, you know, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Gospel uh, or the Book of Enoch, and he says, and we've got all these other books that have just come out, and so we don't even know if what we have is the Bible. And he said, so, you know, you just can't believe any of it to be true. And I just let him talk and talk and talk, and he sure did go on and on and on about how we can't believe the Bible. And, I, and I, as I sat there and I thought about that, I, I, I didn't want to just get into an argument with him because I knew I would not win this argument with him. He was set on his ways. So I continued to let him talk, and he would ask me questions, uh, and he'd say, well, do you believe this? And, I would, and he'd say something from the Bible, and I'd say, yes, I do. And he says, well, you can't do that. You can't believe that. Do you, and, then, and we went from everywhere from the Bible to why we shouldn't celebrate Christmas to, I mean, we hit, the, we hit it all. But after we finished talking with him, or I finished talking with him, really after he finished talking at me, I, uh, you know, I just, I said, well, hey, uh, we'll do this again. We'll have another conversation sometime. And he says, you're the first chaplain who's never just argued with me. I didn't know if that was good or bad. <laughs> Maybe I should have had more of an argument with him. But I got to thinking this, and, and it took, takes me to Romans chapter 10, verse 12. Romans chapter 10, verse 12. 
And this is what the Bible says. It's very small print. I got that up there so you test your eyes. But if you have a Bible, Romans chapter 10, verse 12 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's a great question the Bible asks. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Look at verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The Bible is a priori to belief. What we have talked about so far is we have said, hey, there is natural revelation that God exists. And we went through some of those natural revelation, those arguments from logic, which I believe is part of that natural revelation. You can look at logic, which is a science, and you can see that it is logically possible for God to exist. Those are what we called inductive arguments. We looked at simple uh, uh, different premises and we put them together and we developed an argument that God is possible to exist. That natural revelation, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Man can look out around them in the world, the natural world around them, and they can see that God exists. Now, whether or not they want to acknowledge that is a different story, but they can at least see it, and they can deny it, or they can accept it. But natural revelation will not, is not complete. We need special revelation. We need to be told what we're seeing. For example, someone can be in the uttermost parts of the earth, walk out and see the grandeur of nature and say, my, I am small. I am insignificant. There must be a power greater than me. I wonder if there is an all-powerful being. There must be. I see it around me. But they still will not know that Jesus died for them. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what is special revelation Natural revelation is there, and it's very important. But we are going to look at now, what is the deductive argument for the reliability of Scripture? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We cannot go through an apologetics course without opening the Bible and saying, this is our authority. This is where we stand. So, as I said at the beginning, if you're a skeptic 
and you don't believe God, you are not going to believe what he says. And we'll, we'll look at that. But unfortunately, in our next few minutes together, we will not answer all the questions. Now, I'm not trying to evade any questions, but there are some, I just, we need to realize there are great answers for all of our questions, but there's too many specific questions about the Word of God and answers that, uh, uh, to be able to answer each of them satisfactorily in our time together. So if we get to the end and you still have questions, hey, come talk to me, email me, write them down, because we'll have opportunity in the future to answer questions. So, you may not have a single question, but you want to learn more. I didn't do it tonight, but next week I plan to. I will have some other a list of references that you might uh, find helpful as we look at this reliability of Scripture. So, why do Christians believe what the Bible says is true? But before we get to that question, can I ask this? Is it important... For the Bible to be true. Let me ask you this now. In its entirety. Why? What's that? Right, right. And now we are going to, we're going to look at some of this where some of this has crept into our churches where they'll say, It's one of my pet peeves, I think, when preachers will say something, and, and, and I think I know what they mean, but they'll say something like this. Hey, this word here is translated this, but that's not the best translation. What it really means is, and they'll give you another translation. Like I said, we're going to open up some worms here. A can of worms. We're not going to open the worm up, but the can with the worms. The reality is we also have to be able to trust that we have the Bible in a language we can understand. I have been in fundamentalist churches and heard fundamentalist preachers say, you know, the Word of God is inspired in the original manuscripts. And that is true. But if I can't hold up my Bible and say, I have the inspired and errant word of God, I don't have any original manuscripts. And we'll look at that. Is the Bible lost to us? So it's not just a matter of the Bible has to be true in its entirety in that, hey, the stories that are true, the details have to be true, but is it also true in the way we have it today? And we're going we're gonna to try to look at that. And there are some who have taken it to an extreme, who actually get into what we call bibliolatry, where it's, not, uh, it's beyond a matter of just, hey, this is, a, this is a, a good translation, but man, this is the translation that God reads. And that, and that's, and that can be just as wrong. So we're going to look at that. So it has to be true in its tri- entirety. 
And I think this is an important question because it demonstrates our complete dependence on the Word of God. The Reformation brought back, it wasn't new, but it brought back to the, the, uh, the, the argument, the, uh, the Reformation, this concept of sola scriptura, which is Latin for the scriptures alone. The Bible is our guide for faith and practice. This is what we depend on. And as uh, Brother Fowler said, if we, if we find that it isn't true here, how do we know it's not true over here? If we argue away the, tw- uh, the, the seven literal days of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, how do we know that Jesus was, was died, that he died, was buried, and more, most importantly, that he rose again? And that's why people say, when they ask me, like this, this bosun's mate, he says, do you really believe that a guy got swallowed by the, a whale and survived? I say, hey, there's one of two miracles that happened there. Either he didn't survive, and God brought him back to life, and that's a miracle, or he did survive. But I do know this, he got out of that whale. And not only did he get out of that whale... I have no problem believing that because in Genesis 1, I don't have a problem believing that when God said, let there be light, there was light. I don't have, it really, it's not hard to fathom someone walking on the water who created the water. So we have to believe it in its entirety. We don't have the luxury to pick and choose which I'm hoping this will then feed our, our discussion for a couple weeks, our final lecture, which is going to be on the resurrection and miracles and how we can believe those without apology. So we have to believe the entirety because we depend on this. And this is why we depend on it. The Bible is not primarily a history book, but it is historically accurate. It is not primarily a science book, but it does not contradict, well, sometimes it contradicts science, (laughs) because science is wrong sometimes. The Bible, though, going back to historically accurate, it must, it has to be true because we are the only religion, if you want to call it that, the only faith in the world who actually puts our entire dependence on the actual happening of a historical event. You can take Buddha out of the equation and you can still have Buddhism. You can take one of the thousands of Hindu gods out and you still have Hinduism. You can even make Allah say whatever you want him to say. And in fact, it's not even important whether or not to them Muhammad actually existed. They do believe he did. But there's no event in his life that they say, hey, we are going to stake our claim on this happening in his life. But if you take the actual historical resurrection out... Everything crumbles for us. We have no faith. It cannot be a myth. 
It cannot be just a, uh, uh, an, an allegorical story. It had to actually happen. We base our faith on hist- a historical event. So we do look at the Bible to be very literally, to be literally true. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Where did the Bible come from? The Bible came from God. It came by the Holy Spirit. It came through man. It is to mankind. Now, I do want to say, though, and this is not a, uh, a lesson on hermeneutics, and if you say, what is hermeneutics? Well, if you would have been in Pastor Asher's class last time, you would have learned what hermeneutics is. That's a beautiful word. Uh, it is the study of the Word of God, how to study it properly. This is not a study on the Word of God, but I want to remind us that while we do say from God, by the Holy Spirit, through man, to mankind, the Bible is for us. Not every piece of the Bible was written to us. Okay, you say, well, wait, wait, you mean it's not to me? Well, there are books of the Bible, for example, called Timothy. Who is that to? Timothy. There is a book in the Bible called uh, Thessalonians. It was written to the church at Thessalonica. There is a book in the Bible called Revelation. It was written to, not Revelations, it was written to the church. John wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it is for us. But we're not going to get into the nuances of hermeneutics, but that's part of divide, rightly dividing the word of God. But let's just look at where the Bible came from. As Christians, we believe the Bible is God's letter to humanity. It is for us. It's collected in 66 books written by 40 divinely inspired writers over the span of maybe 1,500 years or more. Just though that sentence right there, that 66 books by 40 authors or writers, I should say, over 1,500 years and not to have a contradiction in it is a miracle in and of itself. These writers came from all walks of life, from kings to fishermen. And we believe the Bible is divinely inspired by God, authoritative for all of life, without error or omission, and infallible in its composition. The 66 books of the Bible are known as, what are they called? The canon of Scripture. What is this word canon? Canon is the Greek word meaning the rule or standard. Canon, C-A-N-O-N. It means in Greek the rule or standard. And Christians use this word to describe the Bible. The book that provides the final rule and authority for our faith. Early Christians did not decide what books to put into the canon. Remember, they already affirmed that the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament was the Word of God. They just faced the question of which book should be added to this Old Testament canon. The books that were recognized. Now, you probably 
had a discussion maybe at one time, or if you've ever watched the History Channel for around Easter, you would watch, you know, how we don't know which books of the Bible we should have. And maybe people have questioned that or brought that up with you. But uh, we look at this, the books that were recognized were written in the New Testament. We're really looking at specifically the New Testament. The books that were recognized were written by either the apostles or eyewitnesses, and they were widely used in the church. So, early Christians did not develop the canon like one would solicit manuscripts for a publisher. It wasn't like the church said, hey, let's figure out how we can just codify all of our faith. That's what most other religions have done. Hey, let's just kind of put it all together. Let's get this in writing. That's not what the church did. It was more like recognizing... If I, I don't want to be uh, uh, sacrilegious here, but it's really like recognizing the bestsellers of established, credible authors. In other words, these writings had been passed around and they were credible. It is remarkable in historical terms how the early church and Christians reached practical agreement and how little dissension emerged. Can I tell you, this is an opinion as I was kind of studying this. This is my opinion. It's worth 50 cents. Back when I was little uh, in church, I had a pastor who would always say, hey, I'll give you my opinion and for 50 cents and my opinion can get a cup of coffee at McDonald's. I think now my opinion is worth 550. Uh, and, uh, and then you can get Starbucks, right? Uh, and so because, you know, but this is just my opinion. Could you imagine if the church... We have today. Not, not, I'm not, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying good news Baptist church. I think we have a good church. I think we have a great church. But could you imagine the church as a whole that we have today if it was our responsibility to come together, to work in unison and in agreement, to look at the Word of God and say, this is the canon of Scripture. I think we would fail. We just don't get along. And we, and we you know, we, we, we point our finger at why and we, we tell everybody, but I mean, I think we're going to quickly see in the next few maybe days, but I think years, how we have to figure out who is on the Lord's side. And I found out, I found that out as a chaplain. That I can just be, I can, I can be a, uh, a very narrow-minded person and live in my hole and say, bless God, if you are not, if, you are, if you're to the left of me, you're a liberal and, uh, and you're, you're not, you don't believe the Bible like I believe it and you don't have the denomination that I have. And I, can, I, I found it can be a very lonely place. There are other people who believe the Bible who may not have the same... Uh, uh, names attached to us. I mean, they're wrong. They should have the name attached to us, but, uh, but, uh, but they do believe the Bible. But when the, when the canon, and I, I, don't, I want to be careful I say the canon was formed, when, when it was recognized, really, when the early church recognized this, uh, it, it's a remarkable how, how the church and these Christians, they reached this practical agreement and how little dissension emerged. The first written document we have that lists all 27 books of the New Testament is in a letter by a man named Athanasius, 
who wrote it in 30, uh, who wrote, it was his letter 39, in 367 A.D. 330 some years after the death of Christ, we see the first time where we see that someone is acknowledging. And that's, that's all I want to point out here. I'm not saying he's the one who decided it. I'm not saying that all of a sudden we didn't know until Athanasius said this. I'm just saying in, in, in writing outside of Scripture, this was the first time someone acknowledged there's 27 books in the New Testament. Well, what was this criteria that the early church went through for canonicity? There are four requirements that we as, uh, uh, that we as Bible believers point to to explain which books have been included in the Old and New Testament. Now remember, there was really no argument about the Old Testament. The Old Testament was compiled and it was kept together. And, uh, and, and, and I, I want to be careful of the words I use here because they, we, you have definitions for words that I have definitions for. And we, we hopefully were close, but I, I could mislead you by saying it was tradition. But the tradition of the Old Testament was it was kept by the, the Jewish nation. They kept it and they wrote it and they, they were very careful about what they wrote. And they, they, didn't, they didn't really question it. Uh, and uh, even to this day, very few of the Jews will question what is included in the Bible. And the Orthodox Jews, their view of the Bible, of what is in the Old Testament, what they call their Bible, what they believe as the Old Testament is what we believe and what we have as the Old Testament. Now, there's some other uh, Reformed Judaism, and there is some uh, uh, other, other sects of Judaism who would say, well, Esther probably shouldn't be in there uh, because it never mentions God. And, and they'll, they'll say some things like that, or uh, some will reject Daniel, or they'll say Isaiah was written by different people over a different time. And so, but, but the Old Testament is according to, uh, uh, even to, the, to Judaism, uh, is what we have what they call the Bible. So we're now we're looking, though, at the New Testament. Why do we have these 27 books? Why do we not look at the, uh, the inter, uh, uh, intertestamental period and we look at the Apocrypha? And why have we not included, even though that was included in the original King James translation, the Apocrypha, and it's in a Catholic Bible, why do we not have the Apocrypha? Why do we not say that's the inerrant Word of God? What is this criteria for canonicity? Well, the first thing is, Apostolic origin. Apostolic origin. We look at this. Apostolic origin is very important. Remember I said that the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses or the apostles. People who were there or the eyewitnesses. It is attributed to, apostolic origin is attributed to and based on the preaching and teaching of the first generation apostles or their close companions. So when we look at that, we think of, well, what, who, who, who wrote these? And Pastor mentioned it, uh, this, I think it was Pastor, one of the messages I heard, was we read a verse where in, in they start, actually I think it was uh, Morris Gleiser, who said, you know, we see disciples and we see apostles right at the same time. Because the disciple is the learner, the apostle is that person who is a representative who is being sent out. But what is a criteria for an apostle? How did you become an apostle? Paul explains it to us. You saw him. You saw Jesus. We say, well, did Paul see him? He saw him so bright, lost his eyesight. Hey, 
I am not. I, just knowing what Paul did when he was Saul as a member of the Sanhedrin, I believe he was there when Jesus was crucified. Or at least in the crowd saying, crucify him. You know, Paul, he talks about how he, 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 he doesn't let us in a lot on his past. But could you imagine the, the grace you would experience if you knew that you were one of those who said, crucify him? So we see apostolic, these are apostolic guards, and these are the ones who were first-generation apostles or their close companions. Uh, I started this. We'll look at it. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke. I mean, these, were, these, these are the apostles. These were disciples, except Luke. These are disciples, but they, these are the ones who saw Jesus. They were eyewitnesses. So it wasn't like, hey, 100 years, 200 years later, we see, we get this, we get this book, you know, the, uh, the Gospel of Judas that shows up 200 years after. And it's written by someone who just is writing under the name of someone else. Those were rejected, and they still should continue to be rejected. So we see, we see apostolic origin is very important. And if you want to put in your notes there a definition of that, it's, it's attributed to and based on the preaching, teaching of the first generation apostles. The first generation apostles. So what is our next criteria? Universal acceptance. This is, if you, put, if you want to define this, acknowledged by all major Christian communities in the ancient world. Now, it's kind of a catch-22, right? So you want to say, hey, you know, are we really depending on what man said to be this? Well, the Word of God is quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God, it affects us. It affects us. There's truth to it. Wouldn't you think then because there's truth and power in the Word of God that it'll be lasting and that people will accept it? When the disciples turned the world upside down, they were turning the world upside down by going into all the world and preaching the gospel. And then when they started to write that gospel down, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John started writing that gospel down, if it is truly inspired by God, and it was, but if I can use that word, if it was inspired by God, it's not going to go away. It's not going to just fade away. I like to write. I enjoy writing. And if you ever want to read some really good stuff, just come ask me. I'll give you some things I've written. <laughs> you know, I don't even remember some of the stuff I've written about. <laughs> and sometimes I'll find something I've written about, and I want to forget I wrote about that. That was some bad writing. But we're talking about the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not just going to fade away. There's universal acceptance. People will, will attest to it, will testify that that is true. 
And so I think we can put some substance behind the fact that there, these, were the, these were the books of the Bible that people were reading, were passing on to each other, and, uh, and, 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 and it didn't just, you know, they didn't read it and just put it in the court. They passed it on. In fact, you saw that Paul, he would tell them, hey, read the letter from this church, and you read that letter and pass these letters around to each other. And they did. They would pass around. There was universal acceptance of these. Now, the next word I know you're going you're gonna to be scared because I'm going to use it, liturgical. Liturgical. These were the passages of Scripture that not only were universally accepted by all major Christian communities in the ancient world, but these were the passages of Scriptures that when the church would come together and read, this was what they read. This was the liturgy. They would read the Word of God. And you've got to understand why. I think sometimes we fail to, to think about our, our faith, where it actually came out of. It did come out of Judaism. And when I say it came out of Judaism, Judaism, they deny that God had a son and his name was Jesus Christ and he died for us. We believe that. But our faith is a Jewish faith. And often we would do better if when we opened the Bible, we looked at it through Jewish eyes. And one of the things that the Jewish people would do in their faith is they would gather yearly at the temple. And you know what they were instructed to do? Listen. As the priest provided three points in a poem and pontificated on some great theological thoughts. No, he would read the Torah and he would just read the Word of God. What happened? We've gotten away from that. And I'll tell you why. Because we have adopted a very Greek, classical, philosophical approach to the Word of God. Even as we study here, I've given you some logical arguments that I think are pretty sound and they're good. But that did not work in the synagogues when Paul was talking to them. You know what the Jews wanted? Show us a sign. And that's when Jesus said, hey, there's no sign other than the sign of Jonah. It says, Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights. So shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. They wanted to say, hey, they were like from Missouri. Just show me. Just show me. I do fear we've become too intellectual. Where we've gone to this, where, well, I just, let me, let me think this thing through. And if it makes sense to me, I'll believe it. Meanwhile, we're denying the power of God. But the liturgical use, when they would, Christian communities would come together, they would read these passages of Scripture, these books of the Bible. Liturgy now is very, something very different. Every once in a while, I get to experience it, uh, and I did just last week. I went to a Mass. Uh, you said, why were you doing that? Well, you know, 
just in case they're right. No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, I went to this mass, and it was amazing. They knew when to stand up. They knew when to sit down. The priest was from some uh, European country. I couldn't understand him. He would say something. People would respond because of the liturgy. The liturgy was just practiced over and over and over. That's not what I mean here when I say the liturgical use. The scriptures was what they used in the churches. These, these 27 books, their weekly worship service, they would gather together in these commu- early Christian communities. They would gather for the purpose of coming together for the Lord's Supper, and they would read the Word of God. There's only maybe a handful of sermons you'll read in the Bible. The Word of God is sufficient. Let me give you the last one, and we will we'll pick up next week. Not only is there the apostolic origin, the universal acceptance, the liturgical use, but these books have a consistent message. These books contain a theological outlook similar or complementary to other accepted Christian writings. They were not, this was not completely just, if you look at our Bible, it's a coherent message. Now there's times when Paul will say something here and we'll look over here and he'll say something else and we'll say, huh, Paul, I do not understand what you're saying. I had a pastor who he used to say, but it doesn't need to be rewritten. It just needs to be reread and reread it and reread it. It's not that there's error in it. It's that we don't understand it. And we got to keep reading and studying it. There's times Paul says something and Peter says something. And we, we look at those and say, they don't contradict, but man, I don't know, I don't know. There's times when Paul says, hey, you, you, were, you were known, uh, your salvation was determined before the foundations of the earth. And whosoever will may come. And we reconcile those and we wrestle with them and we struggle with those things. But it is a consistent message that man is lost and needs a savior. So the fundamental factor for recognizing a book's canonicity for the New Testament, though, this is the fundamental thing. There's some criteria here. This is how we as humans looked at it, but here's the most fundamental thing. Divine inspiration. The chief test for this was apostolic authority. Apostolic authority is never detached from the authority of the Lord. These men were not just giving their opinions they were not just speaking their, their, their minds or how, and Paul wasn't just coming up with a new gospel as many are teaching today. Paul was divinely inspired. From the mind of God to the heart of man. Paul gives his credentials of why he could write. But it was most important because he was divinely inspired to do so. Theologian and biblical scholar B.B. Warfel said, the canon of the New Testament was completed when John wrote Revelation about 98 A.D., A.D. 98. We must not mistake the historical evidence of the slow circulation and authentication of these books as evidence 
of slowness of canonization of books by the authority or the taste of the church itself. The church didn't just say around, you know, hey, 316, let's come up with a, uh, a council and let's make this, let's just really determine this and we're going to be the final authority on what the Bible has to say. They weren't. They just recognized what already existed. When John finished the book of Revelation around 98, the canon was closed. Now, not all the books go were written in the order that we see them. Second Timothy was probably Paul's last book. Some of those Gospels were written maybe 10, 15, even 30 years after those disciples had seen and walked with Jesus. So Matthew wasn't the first one to sit down and write. But we get to Revelation, and when John says in the book of Revelation, and he ends it, With the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The canon was closed. So, how did we get the Word of God? How did we get the Bible? It was from God, by the Holy Spirit, through men, to humankind. But there are some criteria we looked at. Apostolic origin, universal acceptance, liturgical use, and a consistent message. But then next week, we're going to pick up here... How should Christians use Scripture and apologetics? Because now we're going into this realm where you're going to say things, you're going to come from the authority of Scripture, and, and it's an authority you can rely on and you can stand on, but the person you're talking to, they don't believe it. They don't believe it. And you will literally be two ships passing in the night because you're coming from two very different perspectives. And so how should Christians use Scripture in apologetics? A lot of times we think, man, I'm just going to crack them over the head with this. And bless God, I'm going to tell them. You can. But remember the parable of the sower. Because the seed represents the Word of God. And there is some that falls on thorny ground. And there's some that falls uh, uh, and is choked up. There's some that falls by the wayside. But there's some that falls on good ground. And I think it would do us well to find that good ground. We don't always know, but it would do us well to say, hey, let's go find the good ground. I've yet to see a farmer who stands on the interstate just casting seed. So we're going to look at how the Christian should use the Word of God because we do need to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless our time here. Lord, you know, I can give history and, and, uh, and, and, the, and really how we got to where we are with this canon of Scripture. But the truth is, you have preserved your word. And Father, I don't necessarily have to understand that to believe it. But Father, you have given us milestones and markers along the way that point to how you did it. And yeah, you used men, some profane men, men who, men who we, you know, who did, did things, and, and, but yet they helped preserve your word. You and your divine providence did that because you're all-powerful and you're an almighty God. And so we thank you for that, and we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that it will be the Word of God that will keep us and instruct us because as we look into the days ahead, 
We're going to need our sword. And Father, we're going to have to wield that sword wisely. And so I pray that you would help us do it. Not out of vengeance, not out of hate, but Father, I pray that we would take the sword of the Lord and Father, that we would use it wisely and Father, that we would honor you with it. And Lord, I pray that we would show others the love of Jesus Christ, a love that we learned in the Bible. I pray that you would help us do that even this week. Lord, may we not get so distracted by everything that goes on around us. May we not get caught up in social media or the news or what the world has to tell us. But may our focus be on you. And may we look into your word. Because it is still practical and it's alive today. Just as when John finished writing the book of Revelation over 2000, almost 2,000 years ago. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe it and live it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757 757- We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life.